part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You know, we began uh, back last week, back into First uh, Peter chapter 4. And I told you from the very beginning, I said, you're not going to like the sermon. Maybe not so much the sermon, but you're not just going to like the truth that it presents. Because, uh, again, in our mindset, if we could sell a life without obstacle, without trial, without suffering, most of us would sign up for that. In fact, a lot of us, that's actually what we're looking for in our spiritual life. We want a spiritual life. We want a God who kind of saves us from all the troubles of the world. And when we begin to look in the New Testament, that's not what we see. And Peter has been, uh, not once, not twice, but throughout this entire letter that he wrote to Christians who were actually being persecuted. They were being killed, some of them, uh, under the Roman authorities of the day. And so this wasn't theory. When Peter is writing, he's not going, okay, let's get, take a hypothetical. Let's say that perhaps somebody was going to put you in a place of persecution, maybe even calling for your death. This was not something that was theoretical to these churches in Asia Minor. They were suffering this under the Roman authorities. Perhaps some of the ones that were leaders in the church had lost a family member. And so this goes away from, okay, what ifs? And it goes to, how do we respond to the life that's right there in front of us? What's the same thing that you and I can do with the Word of God? Folks, we, we can be very theoretical and hypothetical about the Bible and the biblical truths and say, okay, if this were the case, then what would I do? Or we can say, no, this is the life I'm living. And I'm in a dilemma. I'm in a hard place right now. How do I deal with the reality that's before me? And how do I deal with this biblically? And how do I deal with this in a way that honors God? Not just how do I get through this with the less scrapes on myself. But I don't know about you, but... I was kind of brought up to avoid scrapes. I was brought up to, you know, that it's not wise to go in there and and get hurts and frustrations, that suffering is really something that we should not long for. And here he doesn't say that we should long for it, but he says it is going to be a part of the Christian's life. And he's even going to go a step further in the word this morning. He's going to say not only do you have to learn how to endure this, he he takes us a whole other chapter, a whole other length of maturity. He says, I want you to be able to rejoice in it. Now, honestly, guys, honestly, just the fact that God would want us to endure suffering, is that really something that, that makes sense in your mind? I mean, we can understand it biblically, but, but is that really the way you think? Do you invite suffering into your life? Yeah. Now, if it was just, okay, endure suffering, you know, suffering is a part of a broken world and, and you're going to have suffering. So just endure it and I will hold your hand. If God promised, I'll just hold your hand while you do this. That would be some compliment, wouldn't it? It would be something that we could kind of start to digest a little bit. But God goes so much farther. And today we're going to see in this word. He says, I want you to actually rejoice in suffering. My mind is so far from really grasping that. How does that really work? How do I really, truly, authentically, not just the church answer, well, we're just rejoicing over here with all of our sickness. No, we're not talking about that, guys. We're not talking about this church falsity of just kind of making it look like we are these great Christians when behind the scenes we're really, really, really struggling. How do we get to a place to actually accomplish this? Because it is a call. It's actually, if we go back to the original Greek, it's actually a command that he's calling us to. He says, therefore, if you look down at verse 19, he ends it, therefore, 
and, and that's always uh, an exhortation. It's kind of a command that Peter's giving on behalf of God to us to rejoice in our sufferings. So how do we get there? Well, let's go back to where we left off last week. We kind of peeked ahead, and in verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Beloved. Now notice that first word. Uh, some of you may have in your translation, I think it may say, Dear friends. A lot of translations will have the word beloved. Others will say dear friends. This is personal to Peter. He's writing to these people, again, not in a theoretical way. If you're writing in a theoretical way, you're going, dear sir. He's writing in a very familiar way that is family-oriented. He says, beloved, brothers and sisters, dear friend, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. His words are meant to be endearing. He's using the word beloved. And they are meant to be encouraging to us, to actually encourage us to have this mindset. But these words, as we said last week, are very challenging. This is not the way that our normal human mind thinks. The challenge is not so much the trials, but it's the reason for the trials. The reason that he speaks of here is that these trials come upon our lives because we're actually following Christ in such a close way that we're kind of getting persecuted because of our beliefs. Let me take a quick time out. This is not from what Peter's saying, but let me just examine really quickly so that we can really clarify this. There are three basic ways. That was four. Uh, three basic ways that we have trials in our lives, okay? Three basic ways that, that trouble comes into your life, okay? This is all of us. This is what we share in humanity because we walk on this earth, okay? The first one is because we rebel against God's way. We kind of understand that. God says to do it this way, we rebel and we go a different way, and that brings oftentimes trials in our lives. We, we can understand. God said, okay, don't steal. If we go out today and we try to rob somebody's car, down the road a little bit, and we get caught by the authorities and thrown into prison, or we get thrown into a jail, that kind of makes sense to us. Because that trial was caused by who? Our own choices. We decided that we didn't want to do it God's way. We did it our own way. We rebelled against the truth of God, and so there's a consequence to that. That's one reason why all of us have some of the trials in our life. There's a second reason why we have trials in our lives, and that is that we live in a broken world. Yes, you can point all the way back to Adam and Eve, and you're going, it's your fault. Okay? That Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God in the same way that we rebel, but they were the first ones to rebel against God. And so in their rebellion, all of a sudden, sin comes into a perfect world, a world that was created in perfection. There were no trials in the world before sin. There were no trials. That is, there was no suffering before sin. God created everything perfect. And they got, uh, Adam and Eve, they, they lived in that perfection. They did not have sickness. Again, we wonder sometimes as theologians, okay, could, would they have lived forever and ever? Our, our thought is yes, because there would not have been sickness. The body would not have aged. They would have lived forever and ever. But that's not what happened. They sinned against God, and there was a consequence just like there is in our own personal lives. In that particular case, it brought the sin nature into every one of us. And that's another thing that's really hard to conceive. We talked about it a little bit this week, even with our young kids. When we look at a little baby, we're going, oh, what an innocent little baby. And, I mean, my granddaughter's going to be with us for the rest of the week. 
We're going to see her tonight. And, and it will really be hard for me to see that she's a little sinner. Okay? <laughs> Maybe not so much for her mom and her dad, but for Papa and for Mimi, we're going, no, nah, she's an angel. Don't you see the glow? But in reality, she was born with the sin nature. And more and more, that will be exercised upon as they get older. And, and we'll just see that nature coming out more and more. So some of the trouble that comes into our world, like sickness, for example. Sickness comes upon us because we live in a broken world. There was no sickness before sin. And so it's one of those things, when we think about those first two reasons why trials come to our life, we, we actually kind of can accept that. One we call justice. I do something wrong, I get punished for it. We just call that justice. The other one, that living in a broken world, that's kind of hard for us a little bit, but we kind of get it. And the Bible, throughout the Bible, this is what Christ said, it rains on the just and the unjust. One of our struggles is, why do bad things happen to good people? And yet, this is where we have to, the theology is really kind of the, the essence of, of answering that. There is no such thing as a good person. We were born in the sin nature. They're good in comparison to other people. I promise you, there's a lot of people that are good in comparison to the evilness of somebody else. And that's where we kind of make that designation. We're going, okay, you know, that person is so good, they're so helpful. Why did cancer have to come into his life? And we struggle with that. I don't know if you do, I do. I've been in a lot of hospital rooms over the years. And I'm not saying there's not some sweet men out there, but I've seen a lot more sweet ladies than sweet men. And, you know, as far as just, I mean, angels, just ladies that were just so giving, loving, and all this. And you're standing by there, and the family looks to you as the pastor. Why has this happened to Grandma? Why has this happened to my mama? She never hurt anybody. And yet look at her body and look at the pain that she's in. Now, you think you can answer that without having to go back to the theology, okay? Here's our dilemma. We're, we're all sinners and we're in a broken world and this is why broken things happen even when it doesn't seem just. Remember our excuse for the first one was justice. You do something wrong, you get punished for it, that seems just to us. We really kind of accept those trials. We don't like them, but we accept them because it makes sense to us. This one starts getting in that gray area. What about this good person though? But theologically, we come back and we find out that we live in a broken world. What's well, this third one that we really have the dilemma? That trials, some trials will come into our lives because we choose to stand with Christ. That is, this is not, you can't say, well, this is my cross to bear that I have this disease or I have this complication. Now, unless that complication was caused because you were following Christ, that's just because you live in a broken world. And it's tragic and it's sad. But it's, there's not, that's not what he's talking about here. The suffering that Peter addresses in this chapter is suffering that happens because we follow Christ even when suffering becomes. And there's opposition to it. And we begin to see that a little bit more in verse 13 and 14. Look what it says there. But rejoice. And this is the challenge. I just endure. If he would have said, what if he would have said, but endure insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. That kind of makes sense. Pony up, man up, woman up. Brian, does that make a little bit more sense to you? If, if, if he said, okay, you just endure this. And with the strength of God's help, you just be able to, you know, that would make sense. 
But what word does he use there, folks? Rejoice. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and glory of God rest upon you. See, these sufferings that, he, that we're talking about that he's addressing isn't because we did something wrong and this is the recompense that we get from it. This isn't because we live in a broken world and bad things happen even to good people. No, the suffering that he's addressing here that he says to rejoice in is the suffering that we have in our lives because we've actually taken a stand for Christ. We're actually following Christ. And all of a sudden, this, this going this way means that there's conflict coming back against us. I think that it's pretty apparent in the culture that we live right now that we see some of that happening. That if you stand for Christ, there's actually a pushback from the culture at large against those things that are truly Christ-centered in their lives. It seems like that every other religion that's out there is kind of allowed right now and that there's a lot of what we would call tolerance for that. But would you say that in the society that we live right now, the culture that we live in right now, that there's a lot of tolerance for Christianity? We really don't see that. And we are kind of low on the scale when it comes to persecution, guys. You go to another country, and it truly would mean your life. You would be baptized, you know, in the name of Christ. That would mean separation from your family. You're not only put out of the family, it could mean your death. And so we kind of get this really even minor version of persecution, but that's what Peter is addressing here, this rejoicing. And so he says, Uh, to not just endure, but I want you to rejoice in it. So how can we do that? Let me back up just a minute. How many of your minds that it just seems agreeable to rejoice in suffering, that it just makes sense that when suffering comes your way, you're going, please may I have another helping? And I'm not trying to be cute. I'm really not trying to be cute. Does anybody's mind work that way? No, it doesn't. We're we're kind of self-preservation, okay? Doctor, every time I do this, it hurts. Stop doing it. Okay, and then we have a choice to make. Because self-preservation is kind of one of our big things. When we wake up in the morning, I'm not saying that the first thought that you have in the morning is self-preserve. But I promise you, inside, internally, you know, be the first one there. Do this, okay? You know, there's a sense of self-preservation that comes with humanity. And then all of a sudden he says, not only do endure sufferings, for the name of Christ. He says rejoice in So how do we do that? How do we biblically do that when that's not our natural way of thinking? Well, the Bible gives us an answer there. And the answer is that this mind, not just this heart, but really this is more of a battle of the mind than it is the heart. This mind needs to be transformed. Have you ever seen that word in the Bible before about the transforming of the mind? Romans 12, verse 2. Look what it says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, he's not saying you don't have a mind. He just says your mind usually goes this way. It kind of operates, you know, left to right, let's say. And he says what you need to do on this one is kind of actually think right to left. You're thinking very current, and you need to have this, what we talk about all the time. You need to think more eternally about this. We're kind of focused on this. And God is forever through his word. And through his principles, stretching our mind to be transformed to think eternally. And that's good on Sunday morning. Maybe through a Sunday morning service, so there's some songs we get from here. 
And let's say that we get all the way out here, and we're thinking kind of eternally. By the time you get back home on Sunday, Sunday evening, let's just say Monday morning work. Would you agree that that's usually what happens? Yeah. And so this transformation has to take place in the mind. That's why it's not just a heart thing. It's a mind thing. He says, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, that's really important because this is what Paul was telling us. Peter is going to tell us that at the end of this. We're basically saying, okay, here's one reason why you can rejoice. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But he said, basically, he said, you can trust God because this is God's will. Does that endear you to God on the human level? That it's actually God's will for you to suffer in following Christ. It's kind of hurt, but it's... I mean, especially, how many of you are self-professed helicopter moms and dads a little bit? Yeah. Thank you for your confession. You know, now, a lot of us, you know, we're going, yeah, we really want to, you know, our whole thing is protect, protect, protect. Does that not kind of come through in, in our mommy and in our daddy and that we just want to protect kind of? And, and so to know that this is actually God's will, that we would actually go through some suffering, is really one of those things that our mind is going to have to be transformed. And this, he says, but this is a testing. And the word that's used there is a word that, uh, means that we're going to see the quality of something. So how do we do this? How do we transform our mind? Well, let me this morning give you three things of why we can say, hey, this will help me to rejoice in the midst of suffering, okay? All from this text, okay? These are not made up by the pastor. It's not just, okay, put on your big boy pants. Hey, really try harder. Those are not the answers that he gives us biblically. First answer that he gives us, biblically, of how we can rejoice is that because these are fiery trials. Now, you're going to go, that's not really the answer that I wanted, Pastor. You know, I, I really didn't want there to be fiery trials. This is where the Greek language kind of comes out and means a little bit different from when we think of fiery. When we think about somebody who's going through the fires, we're, we're talking about they're going through really difficult times. The word fiery here is a word of testing. It's a word of testing. You know, when the Bible says that... Um, um, things are going to be tested by fire. Wood, hay, and stubble, gold, and precious gems. It's going to be tested by fire and that what's good, what is worthy, will remain afterwards. That's kind of the, the context here. He says the one reason why you can rejoice in this trial is because God's actually using this trial to mature you to make you more like Christ. This is why he's only talking to Christians and he's not talking to the human population. Human population may not have a great desire to be like Christ. But if you truly are a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that we see that is just a part of us as we want to follow Christ is that we want to be more like him. And God actually says that this suffering for his sake actually makes us a little bit more like him. Why? Because it kind of tests us. We begin to see that. It begins to refine us. takes off those weak places. Sometimes the most maturing times of our life are when we were, have gone through suffering. Would you agree with that? How many of you here this morning are over the age 65? Okay. The wisest people in our room. Okay. The, truly, no. The wisest people in our room. Why? Because with age does come wisdom. We've had enough time to, to test the trial balloons 
and say, that little fad, that doesn't work. This truth, it's eternal. Would you not agree that when we've lived long enough, that all of a sudden we can go, okay, that's a phase, okay? This, this is eternal. And when you're 65 and older, just taking that number, this one, would you say that some of the most maturing parts of your Christian walk have been in the deepest trials? Not necessarily just this kind of trial, because remember, there's three different types of trials. That's when God starts to, to mold heart and life. I would love to say that when things are smooth and rock and solid in my life, that I'm the most committed Christian that you will find. Guys, no, I'm the most committed to self-preservation. How do I keep this boat afloat? How do I keep this good thing going? Knowing the trials of life, when I find out this ultimate thing that comes with wisdom, and that is that you're not in control. And you may be in your 20s, and you may have already figured that out. You may be in your 30s or 40s, and you're figuring that out. But I promise you, by the time you get to your 60s and your 70s and your 80s and beyond, you have figured out that all your proper planning, all your careful work, all this towards self-preservation, in one second, everything could change. Would you say amen to that, 65 and older? Yeah. And so God says here, okay, this is a fiery trial. And, and I allow you to go through this fiery trial. Why? Because I'm really most concerned with the finished product. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what it says. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So this is Paul talking to Christians, and he uses the same term, terminology, that they're rejoicing their sufferings. What's the next word? Knowing. Knowledge. Awareness, not just hypothetical. In the Greek, there's knowing by theory and there's knowing by practice. Sorry to do this, guys, but Emily and Tristan, okay, right now, okay, we're, we're how many days away? 48 days away. I'm glad you knew that, and it wasn't upon Tristan to say how, you know. <laughs> okay, 48 days till you become husband and wife, okay? So all this marriage stuff right now is theory, okay? And theory is important. 49 days from now, 149 days from now, 1,049 days from now, it won't be theory anymore. It will be reality. And you will go from the knowing, one word in the Greek, knowing by theory, to knowing by practice in actuality. He uses the word here, knowing by practice. In other words, he says, and Paul says, look, I'm just not speaking theoretically. I'm saying that you know that you know that you know because of life experience that you can rejoice in this. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Just because you're in your 20s and your 30s, you can get a grasp on this. You may not have a full understanding to your 60s and 70s, and you really travel that road quite a bit. But because of the Spirit of God, you can have a grasp on this even now. And so that's what Paul says. So the first reason why we can rejoice in suffering is because God uses it. He does not let that go waste. He uses those fiery trials to make us more like Christ. Second reason, because you will share in the glory of Christ. When you're a Christian and you're going through trials, the Bible has promised that you will share in the glory of Christ. That's amazing, guys. That's amazing that Christ 
would allow you to share in his glory. Now, this is not your glory. This isn't me standing up in heaven one day and everybody looking at me and applauding. This is not. No, we share in the glory of Christ. Look what it says in verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's an intimacy. You know God. You're intimate with God. And because of this intimate relationship, when he's glorified and we see that glory revealed, we get to share in that. If you know the New Testament, remember the three disciples that were with Jesus when the transfiguration took place? Did they get to share in his glory? Now, they weren't glorified, but do you think that was a pretty special day? Remember what one of them said? We should not go back to real life. We should stay right here, because this is really God. They saw the glory of Christ revealed. And he says, man, we, we shouldn't go back. We shouldn't break camp. We need to stay right here. I don't know if you got to watch some of the D-Day remembrances this past week. Really kind of, I mean, if you don't have a heart if that didn't just kind of strum a couple strings there. But uh, can we show that picture? So these are actually some of the people that were back for the 75th um, commemoration of, of D-Day. And uh, they were given, many of them that were there that day were actually given the highest honor uh, by the French. And uh, I think it's the, the, the Legion, I forget the particular name, but they were awarded that. And guys, I was watching this the other day, and it was, it was their glory. It was their glory because they had been there. But I felt pretty special. I don't even know them. I don't know if that's Joe and Fred and Tom. I don't know a single one of them. Here's what Jesus is saying. One day when I come into my full glory, when that full glory is revealed, because of our intimate relationship, because you suffered with me even for my name, that glory, you're going to share in that glory. Again, it's not glory to us, but we get to share in that glory. Does that make sense? In the same way that, I mean, a mom and dad on that wedding day, you're going, yeah, that's my daughter. Yeah, that's my son. Yeah, you share in the beauty of that day. And there's joy rejoicing in your heart. And that's what Peter says. Second reason we can rejoice is that even though you're going through this right now and suffering, and it is hard, and it is a fiery trial, one day, Understand that because you suffered for the cause of Christ, you will share in his glory. And the Bible says that throughout the New Testament, time after time. See, Peter saw sharing in the suffering of Christ as a privilege, not as a punishment. This was a privilege to be able to do this, to carry the name of Christ. This wasn't a punishment. Acts chapter 5 we go back and we see the New Testament church. And this is the time when the apostles, they had been arrested uh, because they were preaching. They were just preaching the gospel. And look what it says, Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak, speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Now get this. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. When they walked out, now they were beaten. And the prisons weren't not really nice back in those days. 
So they had gone through really a hard suffering time because they identified and they preached the name of Christ. And when they left, they're being released now and they're walking down the streets. And Ricky, they're turning to each other and going, man, we are so blessed. Not, man, we were really punished. They're saying, what a privilege. We were so blessed that we actually got, we got to be counted worthy of being persecuted, of suffering for the name of Christ. And that's a transformed mind, guys. That's not how my mind normally in self-preservation mode works. So I need to be transformed so that I can truly not just endure this suffering, but I can actually rejoice in it. That's where we were talking last week about Romans 8.18. It's one of my favorite verses. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. That's tough. He never says that it's not difficult. He just says, in comparison to the future glory that we get to share with Christ, no comparison. Third and final, we can rejoice even in the midst of our sufferings for Christ because the Bible has said here that we will be blessed and we will be comforted. Look at verse 14 again. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God comes and he ministers to you. In the same way that God sent those ministering angels to to Christ when he was there in in the garden at Gethsemane, he he sends to minister to Christ because Christ is following God's path for his life. And that's the promise that you and I have. Not that we will not go through times of suffering, but that you will not go through times of suffering alone. Hopefully there will even be other Christians there. That passage that we just read in Acts, I mean, I think that was encouraging that you got two or three people around you. Students, this is why it's so, so important. I I know that it's one of those, okay, I'm just going to kind of keep my personal convictions here, uh, and I'm not going to let it be known in school. This is why it's so important, really, to, to to carry the name of Christ with you at school. Because it really is important to know, hey, I'm not the only one. Because I promise you, there's times that it feels like you're the only one. And that if you made a stand for Christ, that you're doing it pretty much solitary and you're doing it all by yourself. Now here we have the comfort that God says you'll never be alone. But there's even comfort when we have friends that will stand with us in that cause. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit will be there? It means that God himself will give you a comfort in the midst of that. Perhaps one of the greatest examples in the Bible of that is when uh, this uh, man by the name of Stephen... And he's just preaching the gospel. He's carrying the cross of Christ high. And they tell him to shut up, and he won't shut up. He, they tell him to be quiet, stop. You, know, you can't preach that, and he keeps on preaching it to the point where they basically arrest him, and, and now they're kind of putting him under trial. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 15, when he's on trial, it says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So the countenance of God was upon him when he's in this trial. Well, the trial didn't go so well as far as for Stephen. Because in that trial, he just says, I'm not going to be quiet about the gospel. And they said, you're not going to be quiet? Then we will fix that, basically. And they go out there and they considered it blasphemy and they picked up stones and they begin to stone Stephen. He's the first Christian martyr that we see there in Acts. And look what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 55 and 56. But he, and what is the description of he? That is Stephen. What what description does it give? Full of the Holy Spirit. 
See, this is what Peter promises, okay? You go through suffering and trials, you will not be alone. You will be full of the Holy Spirit. So here Stephen is going through. Would you consider that a fiery trial when people pick up rocks and they surround you and they start throwing rocks to, to end your life? That's pretty dramatic. And yet it says here, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Guys, next time that you have to suffer for the cause of Christ, I'm not going to say that the, glory, that the heavens are going to open up. And that you're going to be able to see God the Father and, and God the Son there. You, you might. But I know that that's the promise that God has given us. Not so much that we will visibly see with our physical eyes, but that the very presence of God will be there upon your life. How do we do more than just endure? How do we actually transform this mind that is geared towards self-preservation into a place of denial of self and, and, and saying yes to the cause of Christ no matter what the cause? How do we do that? By looking upon those promises, knowing that God does not waste anything, knowing that one day we will share in the glory of Christ. It's not our glory, it's his glory, but we're going to have such an intimate relationship and we're going to have just joy over there and and about that. And then this last part, God says, you'll never be going through this alone. A very spirit will be there. We want a spirit of protection. He gives a spirit of not just preservation, but rejoicing. Very last verse. Go down to verse 19. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, always ask why it's what it's there for, okay? Because it's always going to be a command. It's always going to be an exhortation. And here's what the, the, the word is commanding us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What does that mean? Here's what it means. God is sovereign. Nothing escapes the knowledge, get this, are the will of God. Not one of us, in one way, and I can explain this theologically if you want to sit down and have a really tall glass of coffee because it will take a while. None of us can really work uh, against the sovereignty of God, the will of God, or you know that. What we have freedom of will, and we make choices. God doesn't move us around like chess players. But his sovereignty trumps every bit of that. God not only knows all those things, but God truly is a sovereign God. And that's where here, Peter goes back and he said, this creator God, this God who has created all things, he is sovereign over all creation. Now, why does that matter, Pastor? Because it matters this way. There's no suffering that you would ever endure in your entire life that is outside of this permissive will of God or this... Uh, at least the permissive will of God. He is sovereign over things. We can trust God on this. The same God that brought his son to give you life is the God that now has promised, look, I'm there with you, John. I'm, I'm, I'm there with you. And in this suffering, not only are you not alone, but understand that nobody's coloring outside the lines of what I've permitted or what I have uh, committed to may not change the circumstances of the day. It just knows that it's not out of control. Because you know one of the most fearful things to you and I in our sense of self-preservation? 
is what we talked about just a little while ago, and then we'll close. We find out when we start hitting 55 and 60 and 65, I mean, it's not that we can't understand this earlier, but we really know by the time we start hitting those ages, I am not in control. I got my plan. I got my agenda. I've got everything figured out. I've saved for retirement. I've done this. And all of a sudden we find out, oh, my goodness, I'm really not in control. I'm responsible for my choices, but I can't control my own destiny. And all of a sudden we have to say, okay, then is it fate? Or am I, am I in the hands of a sovereign God? The Bible teaches us that this is not fate, it's not luck, it's not chance. Know that you're in the hands of a sovereign God. If you're in your 20s and 30s today, this is a pretty important thing. If you're in 30s and 40s today, it's an important thing. If you're in your 50s and 60s today, it's an important thing. When you're in your 70s and your 80s, you almost come to a point where you're convinced, I'm so glad that God's in control. Because by that point, there are so many things going on in your life that you've realized that you can't control, that you want to surrender that will of self-preservation to somebody who's in higher authority. Amen? Does that make sense? Again, please don't hear that as condescending to anybody who's not 65 and older. I'm just going, that truth that's already there, that we understand, that we can understand in our 20s and 30s, it becomes pretty rock solid when we get in 65 and 70. We just figured out, oh my goodness. I thought, I planned, I... All of a sudden we find out, no, thank goodness there's a sovereign God who's over all things. Peter wants us to know before he closes the suffering part of this letter out that you're in the hands of a sovereign God who knows you by name. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows everything about you. So any suffering that you would ever go through, God isn't just you know, aware of. He's actually allowed. You can either take peace in that and rejoice, or you can say, well, that's not fair. The rejoicing comes that we know that God is always working. Have you ever given up on somebody? Some people gave up on a marriage. Understandably so. Maybe it was just, you know, giving up on a friend. If you're a business owner, maybe you gave up on a worker. I mean, I gave you chance after chance after chance. It just didn't work out. Here's the assurance that if you're in Christ this morning, God's never going to say, oh, I just give up on you. Isn't that a comfort? Have you had some bad days when you would have given up on yourself? And yet God says, I mean, I don't give up on you. I'm sovereign God. And I hold you in my hand. And you can take comfort in that. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. Father, even with these biblical truths, I don't know that I'm ready to sign up and say, yes, bring the suffering on. Father, my mind really needs to be transformed. But Father, thank you that you've given us truth to start that transformation. Father, will you allow me more and more and more to not trust my own sense of self-preservation, but to trust your sense and your call, Father, as a sovereign God to direct my life. Father, this morning, there, there's some. I think of the Odoms right now, Father. As we mentioned last week, I think of Bob and Lynn 
And they've prayed and they've prayed and they've prayed and they're wondering, okay, how do I keep on praising you, rejoicing in the midst of a storm when it hasn't gone away? Father, will you teach us more and more and more how to praise you in the midst of the storm? Because we just trust you. We don't trust the storm. We trust you. Because you are sovereign creator, holy God who said, come call me Father because I've brought you into my family. We love you and we thank you. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.